Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Why don't you have a rule that says no spending the night at the Scoutmaster's house? Right, right. Period. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing uh, this afternoon? I'm good, Steve. I, I told you right before we started recording that I'm I'm on some Mucin XD, but uh, you're doped up. Yeah, <laughs> on some so of this those should be a fun one. We'll, over we'll the counter decongestants, uh, but no, I'm good. I'm I'm really looking forward um, to today's today's episode. It's a little bit different for us and very important. All the cases we talk about are important, but right. um, the scale of this one seems. Well, this one, I mean, and and uh, let me go ahead and introduce our guest, uh, Gillian Dumas, who is a partner at the law firm of Dumas and Vaughn in Portland, Oregon. And you can look her up at uh, DumasandVaughn.com. That's D-U-M-A-S-A-N-D-V-A-U-G-H-N.com. Uh, Gillian, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. We have a rare sunny day out here in Portland before <laughs> the bad weather comes back. I remember those days out in Portland when, uh, when you know, there was uh, about nine month period where it was basically overcast the whole time. Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, but otherwise, an absolutely gorgeous city with uh, with. And there's a reason why your rhododendrons grow uh, like trees where ours out here on, on the East Coast are tiny little bushes. <laughs> That's right. And some of them are blooming now. So. Right, right. Wow. <laughs> um, well, very good. Uh, well, Gillian, let me uh, uh, introduce you to our listeners uh, and, and give a little bit of background so everybody can know um, know uh, know about you and, and know what kind of work you do. Uh, as I've already said, Gillian is a... Um, is a partner in the law firm of Dumas and Vaughn. She uh, specializes in sexual assault and sexual molestation cases. I'll get that right. Um, (laughs) Sexual molestation cases has uh, represented uh, numerous individuals in the cases involving the Boy Scouts of America, uh, the Assemblies of God Royal Ranger Program, and uh, Catlin uh, Gable private school, as well as numerous other cases, has been involved in a number of trials. And the, the trial that we're going to be talking about today uh, was, uh, it, I'll, let, I'll let Gillian talk about it, but it, it seems to me that this was sort of one of the first trials that really sort of broke open the the cases against uh, the Boy Scouts of America uh, that was tried back in 2010. Um, but uh, as far as your background, uh, Gillian, let me just first give a huge shout out that uh, that Gillian is a graduate from Lewis and Clark Law School, my alma mater, Go Pioneers. Uh, the, I think I think Gillian, you are the first guest on the uh, on the uh, podcast that went to the same law school that I did. Um, but right. it's a it's a it's a great law school, number one in the country for environmental law every year. In and you know year in and year out, and um, and uh, in obviously in beautiful Portland, Oregon, and uh, and just a great place to go to law school. Uh, but Gillian is also barred in not only Oregon but in Washington, California, and Idaho. Um, she is heavily involved in the Oregon State Bar uh, and on their executive committee for the, the litigation committee and uh, has been named a super lawyer uh, numerous times. And um, what I thought was uh, and, and was the president of the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association. But what I thought was uh, was really cool is, that I guess, in your spare time, you write a blog called The Rose City Reader. Is that right? 
I do. I've had a book blog now uh, for 14 years, which is like the, the grandmother of book blogs. Right. Right. I was going to say, you must have been one of the first blogs out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, I checked it out. I don't know if, if, you, if you checked it out, Steve, but I, I feel like this was perfect timing for me because um, usually I don't make a lot of time to read, but um, read for fun, I should say. But now that I'm not going anywhere, really doing anything other than working, I needed uh, some fresh ideas. So the blog was perfect for me. Oh, perfect. Excellent. Nice. Find a new book to read. Um, well, very cool. Well, it's, it's great to have you on the show, Gillian and, uh, and welcome. And, um, and again, um, so glad to have somebody from Lewis and Clark. Well, super. Yeah. Go Pios. Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Go Pios. I'm going to, I'm going to copy that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I was cool and went there too. That's a much cooler, more hip way to say it than the way I did. Yeah. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, let's talk about this case. The name of the case is uh, is Carrie Lewis versus the Boy Scouts of America and uh, Cascade Pacific Council. Uh, the uh, Church of Latter of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints was also a defendant, but they settled prior to trial. Um, and uh, as I said, you know, I'll go through the facts a little bit. Um, but this really seemed to me uh, to be the first uh, case where the um, the discovery of, if anybody's familiar with Boy Scout litigation, these uh, perversion files uh, that the Boy Scouts have had, where they had literally thousands of reports of um, molestations going back to, it, it sounded like in your case, it was going back to 1965, but there was actually some evidence that they might have gone all the way back to 1925 uh, yeah, for the Boy yeah. Scouts. Well, what they they probably kept these files from the beginning of the Boy Scouts in 1911. Uh, their own testimony was they kept them from the beginning of the organization. The oldest existing one is from the late 40s okay. uh, because they destroyed them as men got older died. Um, for a long time, they had a policy of destroying them when a man turned 70, figuring that uh, no man would molest a kid after he was 70. Right, um, right which proved to be a really bad policy because men were molesting kids uh, well into their 70s, 80s, and 90s, as they found out, because they kept making new files on the same men. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, But in our case, we moved to compel the files. Obviously, um, the Boy Scouts wouldn't produce them voluntarily. We knew they existed. There had been talk about them. You know, there had been a book written about them. Um, not very easy to get your hands on, but there had been a book written about them by Patrick Boyle called Scouts Honor in okay. the late 90s. Um, and so, so you know, everybody kind of knew that they exist. Everybody, no, there were a few lawyers out there doing this kind of work who knew that those files had existed. Um, but Obviously, they didn't produce them voluntarily in discovery, and we had to move to compel them, which was a bitter fight. Right. And the judge agreed that we could have the files uh, that predated the date of the abuse in our case by 20 years, which is why we got the order to produce the files going back to 1965, um, up to one year after the date of abuse in our case, which right. is why we got them to 1985. So we got 20 years worth of files. That's why the case keeps talking about 1965 to 1985, a total of 1,285 files is what they produced. Roughly 1,250 involved 
child abuse allegations or child abuse claims. Um, the others involved men who were put in a perversion file simply for being homosexual. Right. Um, their, their word. Uh, and then, but the, the Boy Scouts, of course, continued to create these files right up to the present day. So, so they didn't start in 1965. They didn't end in 1985. But those were the files involved in our trial. Yeah, and at least, and we'll talk about this more as we go on and talk about the trial. But at least from what I could tell in some of the um, um, uh, excerpts that were given in the opening statement and the closing, it sounded like a lot of when you say there's 1,250 or so um, uh, incidents, I mean, sound like a lot of those files actually involve multiple victims. Like, so sometimes would be people talking about 15 different victims. So you might, I mean, whatever that number 1,250 might represent, you know, 50,000 victims. Oh, uh, absolutely. We always talk about it being the, the tip of the iceberg. And that's for a lot of reasons. One thing you got to absolutely remember is that those 1,250 files from 65 to 85 were only the files in existence. Right. Because they destroyed an unknown number of files. Uh, BSA National created the files, kept the files. No local scouting unit or organization was involved in creating the files at all. It was all done at the national level with help of the local councils of the Boy Scouts. Those are the local state level. But the local troops, the actual Boy Scout troops have nothing to do with creating these files. They didn't right. even know they existed. <clears throat> wow. Um, until it was in the news, you know, news. Um, so, and they, uh, so, and then, like I said, they kept destroying them. So we, nobody knows how many actual files there were from that time period. All we know is that those were the ones that still existed at the, as of 2010, when they had to produce them in our case. Right. And each file yeah, might involve 10 boys, five boys, 20 boys, three boys. You know, each file is for one perpetrator. Right. But they have multiple victims, but it's only the victims that they found out about also. And we know that, you know, most boys don't tell. Only maybe, I think that it ranges from, um, you know, maybe six out of 100 boys tell. Wow. Or even less than that. You know, most boys never tell. So if they happen to figure out that a guy has three victims, it's only because, you know, sheer luck, you know, blind luck that they figured it out. You know, they they never went back. They never went. Let me. They would find out about a bad guy. They'd create a file. But then they never went and to the troop and said, Hey, we just kicked this guy out because he, he got caught molesting a kid. Um, you better talk to your kids. Hey parents, you talk to your kids. Um, and by the way, give us the rosters from the years that he was a volunteer so we can go alert those parents as well. Right. And so, you know, we've got, um, some cases involving, um, a really bad perpetrator here in Oregon a guy named Clyde Brock, he was terrible, but he volunteered for over 30 years. When he finally got caught, he said, I was, I was a fantastic volunteer. I volunteered for over 300 boys. Oh my God. Well, when they kicked him out, they said, you can leave 
and you can tell people it's for your health and we won't tell anybody why you're leaving, including they didn't tell the parents of the 10 boys they knew he had molested, let alone go back and tell the other parents in the troop, let alone go back and tell the parents of the boys that he had been volunteering for for 30 years. So, I mean, just think of the the thousands and thousands and thousands of yeah. families yeah. Yeah. who were touched by these abusive scoutmasters in, you know, horrible ways that were just hidden away in these files. Yeah. And that yeah. Nobody ever knew. Nobody ever knew because the Boy Scouts of America didn't do anything with the information that they gathered and then just locked away in filing cabinets. Right, right. And it, I mean, it makes you question, I'm, I'm glad they did have the files, but it makes you question why keep a file in the first place if you're not gonna do anything about it, if you're just right. gonna pretend like it doesn't exist. Right, I mean, you keep a list, but you can't just keep a list. It, right, great, right. you have the list, the guy can't get in again. Right. Right, that's the first step. But there are, five, six, 10 other steps you need to take if your goal is to keep kids safe and your goal isn't simply to protect your brand. Right, right, right. Yvonne, right. uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis <laughs> you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life. 
videos, they do settlement documentaries, they do demonstratives, and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. Well, um, let me just give a quick rundown of the facts in this case. Um, uh, this this case involved a um, uh, a assistant scoutmaster named Timmer Dykes, who um, what sounded like was a, was an assistant scoutmaster out in Oregon between uh, the years of 1979 to 1985. Although at some point he went to a volunteer status, and that was a big part of the trial. Um, and during that time, he molested a number of uh, of boys. Um, this particular case involved a, a young man at the time. This we're talking uh, 1982 to 1984, uh, uh, named Mr. Uh, Kerry Lewis, uh, who w- was incredibly uh, brave to put this case to trial. I'm sure you. I, I don't know. You know, one thing I, I do want to talk about is what you had, what the, what the discussion was like with the client to come out publicly and and talk about what had happened to him and and have this case tried in public because that's. It's very brave. And, and there was mention in the trial that there, I think you all had represented six other victims or, or maybe five other victims of Mr. Dykes that uh, that, that were anonymous um, or at least uh, hadn't disclosed their identities. Um, go, go ahead. Gillian. Well, that's um, yeah, actually, it's interesting. And Carrie also didn't use his name when we originally went through the case. It was only halfway through the trial that he started using his name. Okay. Um, because it was really empowering for him to go to trial. But th- up until halfway through, and it was a six-week trial, um, <clears throat> he was he was John Doe. They were, all six of them were John Doe's. There were two more in an, a separately filed case. So there were eight total. They were eight, all eight of them were John Doe's. And it, but it was only sitting through the trial that he finally saw that, Hey, this is good. I'm finally like, I'm telling my story. The world isn't crashing. I'm getting a lot of support, you know? And, um, and he said, yeah, no, it's okay to use my name. And that's when the case started uh, being known as the Carrie Lewis case. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna say, but that, I mean, you know, what a courageous decision by him because, you know, one of the things that we'll talk about is, is, you know, how, you know, I mean, it's true with everybody who's I'm sure been a victim of molestation, but it seems, especially with, uh, with, with men, when they're molested, they just don't want to admit that they've been molested. Oh, for sure. Um, They, they never come forward. I will also say, um, Mr. Lewis did not have the choice to be the one to go to trial. The judge picked a name out of a hat. Oh, wow. Okay. Of the six. And he was the one who got picked. We didn't know up until I think it was um, I think it was a month before trial that he picked one of the John Doe's out and said, this is the one you're taking to trial. Wow. wow. So, so, I mean, you all had, had you asked for a trial date and, uh, and basically you said you're ready to try one of them. And then it, it, there was no agreement on which one would be tried between you and the defendants or. Yeah. And I, and, you know, now going back 11 years, I can't remember if, I think the judge had always said, 
you know, we're not trying all six of these together. That's just too much. It'll take forever. You're going to try one of them if you can, you know, and I assume you're not going to be able to agree on which one you want to try. So I'm just going to pick one and wow. he randomly picked one. Wow. And he literally <laughs> like wrote the numbers down on, on pieces of paper and plucked one. Wow. Um, a month before trial. And I, and I saw Gillian in your, in your note to us when you were sending materials and this might come up later, how, especially compared to Georgia, how little, yeah, <laughs> you yes. know, before you go to trial, you're, are you going to ask about that later? Uh, I was definitely going to get into that. Um, okay. All right. I'll, I'll wait then. Let, let, but let, that's me, a, let me get through the facts of the yeah. case and then we'll get into <laughs> how little information you get in Oregon. Yeah. Trying your case. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, so just just quickly to get through the facts is is that uh, Mr. Lewis was uh, part of the Cub Scouts. I think initially they had, he had moved to uh, Portland in 1982, and then I may get the pronunciation wrong. Is this the Weebelows? Is that how, how do you say that? Weebelows. Yeah. Weebelows. Weebelows. Okay, that's the sort of uh, the the group in between Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. Uh, so he was a, a, a Weebelow, and I think that might have been when he first met Mr. Dykes, uh, and then. Um, and then he became a, a Boy Scout. And during that time from 1982 to 1984, suffered uh, molestation. And just some some of the facts, and we'll talk about this more as we go along, is, is that in 1983, and I guess part of this is, is how the Boy Scouts are, are um, organized. You have the National Boy Scout Association, uh, or Boy Scouts of America, uh, which is the overall entity and then you have the councils and that in this case it was the cascade pacific council and then under that you've got these chartered organizations that uh run uh the local uh troops and and that was the uh, church of latter-day saints the 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 mormon church there and um and in 1983 and and i, I didn't hear exactly why but in 1983 uh, Mr. Dykes admits to the bishop of the Church of Latter-day Saints, who was the head of the, the scout troop, um, that he had molested 17 boys. Um, and he so he makes this admission. And, and one thing, I, I, there's, there's a lot of questions I have, but let me get through the facts. He makes this admission in 1983. He... Um, it sounds like the the um, bishop let the seventeen families know, or at least asked them questions about what had happened, but never tells the rest of the Boy Scouts or the rest of the Cub Scouts. Never tells anybody what's going on. Uh, Mr. Dykes is actually uh, arrested and put on a, a bench probation, or um, uh, that I saw. Uh, and it sounded like for it was just for some of the charges because uh, one uh, the um, uh, the bishop and the, the people who knew, I think there was also the senior scoutmaster also uh, knew that, uh, that there had been this uh, molestation, didn't tell the police of all the victims and didn't. Um, and then not all of the victims, as we just said, admitted that they had been molested, at least not right away, but he had made this admission. So he gets put on probation, gets arrested, gets put on probation, gets a, Essentially, I don't even know what this means. It must be something for, you know, specific to the Mormon church, but the bishop withdrew his sacred calling to the youth program. That was his punishment, which apparently doesn't mean anything because he would then was still a volunteer with the Boy Scouts. 
And, and it, during this period of time is when he becomes particularly close with Mr. Lewis and, um, and really, um, uh, at least I think we, there was at least evidence of four different occasions of molestation. And then he, even Mr. Dykes during, or right before the trial in his deposition had admitted to at least one occasion of, uh, molestation of, uh, of, of Mr. Lewis. And, um, and so basically the, the molestation is going on. It sounds like everything sort of comes to light for the families because they were on a trip in July of 1984 in, in Tillamook, Oregon, and he gets pulled over by a police officer when they run his, uh, his license, they see that he's a uh, convicted pedophile and what is wondering what he's doing with the van full of young boys. Um, and so the, um, they, they basically take him into custody and they, they call the parents of all these boys who are sitting at the police station. Um, and, and that's the basic facts of this case. And I'm sure I've left out a, a number of things. Um, and just to, uh, let everyone know the verdict for, uh, Mr. Lewis, um, uh, for his compensatory damages was 1.4 million. Uh, and then that was, uh, um, apportioned or, and I'm not sure how it works in Oregon, but 60% of that was put on the Boy Scouts of America. 15% of that was put on the Cascade Pacific Council and 25% of that was put onto the, uh, Church of Latter-day Saints. Uh, and then, and then there was a punitive damages trial that went forward just against the Boy Scouts of America. And that resulted in $18.5 million punitive damages verdict. Uh, so for a total verdict of, uh, of 19.9, uh, million on behalf of, um, uh, of, of Mr. Lewis. And, um, I'm sure I've left out a, a number of things. There's, I, there's a, there's a ton of information. Um, you know, and, and one thing we've already talked about is part of the evidence at the trial was this sort of, uh, you know, institutional knowledge of the Boy Scouts, of, uh, and, and interesting that I was about to use the word problem. Apparently the Boy Scouts don't like to use the word problem, uh, because that was asked a number of times at trial, whether or not they recognized they had a problem with molestation. They, they kept saying, well, I wouldn't call it a problem. You know, they do just issues with the word problem, which is always great for trial. So, uh, um, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the fact that they just wouldn't admit that. Um, but it, but just, I mean, evidence upon evidence of years and years of knowledge of the Boy Scouts of America, of people of um, scoutmasters and and people involved with the Boy Scouts molesting boys, um, you know the files themselves went back to 1965. There was some evidence that it even went back as far as 1925, as far as you know knowledge, and probably as as Gillian already said, all the way back to the beginning of the Boy Scouts. Um, but uh, but that was part of the evidence that that was put in and. Um, and so um, that's that's the basics of the case. And I know I probably left out some stuff, but, but generally, did I get that generally right, Gillian? Yeah, that's absolute. That is absolutely right. Um, well, so back to Yvonne's question, and I didn't mean to not <laughs> give her that question, but the, um, one thing you wrote to us right at the B uh, uh, when you sent us the materials is that in Oregon, and I, I had heard about this and uh, probably should have known this more since I went to law school out there, um, but uh, the, your your discovery is very limited in, in Oregon. There's no interrogatories. Um, there is no expert discovery uh, and no pretrial order. And right. I think what I think what you said is on the the day or it was at the day that trial starts you get a witness list and there happens to be a few experts on there 
and you just say, <laughs> that, okay. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we believe in the old fashioned trial by ambush. It's the wild west still here. Um, so yeah, we don't like, just like you said, no interrogatories. We do everything by um, document discovery, right, right. You know, request for production, document discovery. We do so, we do some um, requests for admissions, okay. but we're limited to 25 of those. So we can <laughs> do a lot. Um, and then we take depositions of whoever we can find. And we, uh, but boy, we love our documents because that's really right, right. our toolbox. <laughs> uh, in this case, it worked well because we got those uh, IV files. We only got them three weeks before trial. So we were scrambling to go through them and, um, and have our experts go through them. But yeah, wow. we do not know who we don't, we have a good idea who the fact witnesses are going to be for the other side, because we've taken their depositions. Hopefully we've found them ourselves and taken their depots, but they can spring some fact witnesses on us and we sprung fact witnesses on them. Right. Um, and then, but for, as for experts, Nobody knows until the morning of trial because you need to exchange witness lists in case somebody in the in the veneer knows, you know, knows somebody. Wow. That's the only reason we exchange witness lists the before we start picking a jury. Oh my o goodness. Otherwise we wouldn't know <laughs> wouldn't even know those. So, so it, it's is the, the is, I mean, so you're under no duty to tell them your witnesses. I know it's hard for me to get my, uh, my, my, you're under no, neither side is under any duty to disclose the witnesses. So like, I was just thinking about like in a med mal case where you've got a stack of medical records that are, you know, this long and you've got, a, you know, hundreds of nurses and doctors throughout. I mean, any one of those people is fair game to bring to trial, I assume. Right. And and so, you know, most of those might have been deposed if the other side thinks that they have information. So we do a lot of depositions, Yeah. Um, you know, and, and like in this case, we took depositions of whoever local council people we thought might have information. They took depositions of every family member they could think of, you know, so we so we kind of have that ready. Yeah. But. Are there any... Um because I'm thinking about like what we're doing when we're leading up to trial, especially like a month out. Right. And at, and at a month out, you've just found out which case the judge says is going to go first. Right? right. So, so I'm just thinking of that was already like, I would be a ball of stress. I'd be like, I got to make sure our damages witnesses can make it and can be there for, for this specific plaintiff and, and everything like that. And then on top of that, you're dealing with a situation where you've got to be on your toes as far as what witnesses are even called trial by ambush, as you said. Do you think there are, I'm just interested in your take on it. Like, do you, do you like doing things that way? Do you think you thrive doing things that way? Uh, you have to be a real adrenaline junkie. And of course, right. all trial attorneys are, yeah. uh, I think maybe it's a, maybe it's a higher level. I think that, you know, the, for because I have done uh, you know cases in other states where right. it's more the federal practice where you've got the um, interrogatories you do the trial the trial order that stresses me out because I'm more used to the Oregon system where we're doing discovery <laughs> right I mean we may right, be doing right. depots the week before trial you know and still waiting for it to get documents and stuff but I'm a little more used to that 
after so many years uh, that I, that's kind of more, I'm like, no, I still want that document. Here's a request, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, give, yeah. give it to me. <laughs> I just found out about it and I want it. Um, and other people are saying like, you know, and others, if there's a lawyer from another state, they're saying like, well, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be allowed to do discovery. We're a month from trial. Like <laughs> too bad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Bring it on. Welcome yeah. to Oregon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So wow. It, that is wait, fascinating. So with the experts, is there anything like an expert report like you'd have in federal court or anything like that? So you don't, you really just, I mean, and then as far as the, what you get on the witness list, do they at least give you an idea of like what area they're going to be talking about? Like what opinion the, they might give? Uh, no. So no written expert reports. The expert brings their file uh, with them to the stand. Okay. And they, and then the, the other side gets to look through their file. So, um, you know, there's the retention letter is in the file. Their CV is in the file. Uh, any notes that they took when they were talking to us is in the yeah. file. Any, any materials that they reviewed, the list of materials they reviewed is in there. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is in there. So in this case, of course, what we had them review were those six banker boxes of right. all of the ineligible volunteer files from the Boy Scouts. Um, so that's what they were there to talk about. And that's what we had them review. So their actual file was, you know, minuscule, it really just had their CV in it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> that, that's a. Uh... That's amazing. I don't, uh, you know, we definitely on cases that go to trial. I mean, it's not unusual that you might get a couple of last minute witnesses and you get them done right before uh, trial. But uh, yeah, to, to learn the, your experts, you know, as you're, you know, sort of walking into the courtroom. Um, yeah. I'm, that, that's, that's, uh, that's amazing. Especially, you, you know, we do a lot of product liability cases where everybody's got, you know, a whole bunch of experts and, you know, they've looked at thousands of documents and then, thousands of you know things it's just uh that that, that would be a little daunting it's impressive i mean it was already an impressive result but that uh wow um yeah. anyway that's all i have to say about that <laughs> right, right, exactly. that's your that's your professional commentary i'm, I'm stunned <laughs> i'm just stunned right, right. <laughs> um well well very good well let's uh where i'm trying to think where we should start on talking about the trial um one of the things that I liked in the opening was the very first um, uh, statement by uh, your co-counsel, uh, which was basically giving the oath of the Boy Scouts um, right off the bat. You know, on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the Scout law to help other people at all times to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake and morally straight. Because it just sort of sets, you know, this is what the Boy Scouts are uh, putting in all the, you know, uh, boys that are, that are going through their organization and yet they didn't live up to their own, um, their own oath. So I, I, I really liked setting that theme, uh, you know, when you've got this organization who's known about these thousands of, um, incidents and has done nothing about it and, um, and is basically actively covering them up, um, you know, to make sure nobody knows, uh, nobody knows about it and just, uh, yeah, it's it's shocking. Yeah. Um, and we know that was effective because in every case 
with the Boy Scouts since then. That's they filed right. a, a motion in limine to um, exclude any argument <laughs> that uh, that their own Boy Scout oath created some standard of care for right, the right. Boy Scouts <laughs> that, that they breached. That's oh the uh, yeah. What is that called? Don't don't uh, do what I say. Uh, I mean, you don't want to do what they do either. So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what yeah. that would be called in your motion in limine. Um, um, Gillian, can you talk about just for our listeners who maybe aren't aware of this or haven't um, dealt with um, molestation cases and certainly don't have the experience that you, that you do about how um, like years back we worked on a, a church sort of youth group molestation case. And that was the first time that I really knew that there was this knowledge among um, churches, groups like the Boy Scouts, as far as that this was actually a very uh, an area that was very susceptible for predators who um, who who are looking to prey on children. Can you just talk a little bit about, I guess, that in general for our listeners who don't know, but how that also factored into the Boy Scouts knowledge in, in this case? If I can, I don't, um, you know, the Boy Scouts had such a specific body of knowledge um, mm -hmm. because of their own uh, reporting system, this ineligible volunteer file system that they had, um, that, I mean, our own experts said that their specialized knowledge from their own files was, uh, because it was centralized and national, it was even more advanced than other youth organizations or other churches. You know, there, there is no one, um, there's no one national Catholic church. There's the, the Vatican, but they didn't keep centralized records on child molesters, uh, you know, child abusers, um, unlike the Boy Scouts. So the, the Boy Scouts file system was unique among youth serving organizations. Um, so it had a, a body of specialized knowledge that was um, you know, superior to any other organization, and yet they did nothing with it. Uh, had they acted on it back when it reached critical mass, and you can, we can argue about when that was, if it was, you know, as early as the 40s, or if it was in the 50s, or if it was in the mid 60s, when they were getting, you know, one, one report a week or, or more. Um, but at some point, they needed to do something about it. And had they done it and set the example and led the way, then maybe other organizations like churches and schools and, um, you know, other other youth groups wouldn't have also wouldn't have had the problem that they had. I mean, it could have really moved the needle in a way that we can't even look back now and say, like, oh, wow, what if? Right, right. Got it. So you didn't even have to go outside to to, you know, kind of what was generally known, because what you had specifically in the organization was even stronger. It's kind of like like Steve, it makes me think of when we use like um, a defendant's own definition or standard of something in their own policy for, for right. you know, you just go right inside for what what they have to set the standard. Yeah, right. we did not do any kind of standard of care like in the industry type yeah. of argument, because we couldn't compare it to another organization because no other organization had this system. Yeah, gotcha. Right. And I, one thing I saw, it sounded like one of the experts you had come on to say, and I think his name was Dr. Schoner. I may, I may be mispronouncing that, but that he had been a previous expert for the Boy Scouts 
in litigation, but had never seen these files. Right. Um, yeah, what yeah, did he Just to talk a little bit about him and his work and, and what, I, you know, especially the fact that, you know, when he worked with the Boy Scouts before, they didn't show him, you know, key evidence. Right. Yeah. He's a uh, national youth safety expert and treating, oh, I'm going to get this wrong, a psychologist, uh, um, I believe. Now, I should look that up. But um, uh, but he's a clinician. So he actually works with um, treating treating patients as well as uh, consulting with organizations to help them uh, protect kids. And in that capacity, the Boy Scouts hired him in some earlier litigation. And he testified that, oh, well, they have the gold standard. They have all these, since the 80s, they've had the these youth protection where they've protect, uh, you know, policies that they've put in place to blah, 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 blah. Well, they never, they didn't tell him, oh, but you know, you need to know that we've been keeping files on all these child abusers and we didn't do anything with them. They didn't tell right. them about that. And so when we called him up and said like, hey, we noticed that you uh, testified for the Boy Scouts, but you've also done all this work on behalf of plaintiffs. Would you be interested in working on this case? Because um, we want you to review the files. And he said, what files? What are you talking about? <laughs> he didn't know. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so he, he um, and since then he's gone on to, um, he's, worked on a lot of other Boy Scout cases since then. Well, right, on behalf right. of the plaintiffs. Yeah. yeah, I would I would imagine now that he's seen the files, it, uh, it probably changes his entire uh, perspective around. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that Digital Law Marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them them we sent you. 
sound like you uh, had a, a detective from um, from Los Angeles come in and basically do a review of the files and then put them into categories to kind of see what the level of knowledge is, you know, how the, the, the boys had been affected and then what they could have done about it. And it, and one of the great points made in the closing, and I'm sure during his uh, direct was it took him about two to three weeks to do that. And the Boy Scouts have had 80 years to do it and they've never once tried to do anything like that. Oh yeah. That, and that was the ongoing theme through the trial that, um, that my law partner, Kelly Clark kept hammering on was, you know, what did they know? When did they know it? And what did they do with that information? And that's what we tried to have um, detective Dorn address in his expert testimony, which based on his review of the files, which like you said, I think that, it took him like 65 hours total to go through all of them. And he could, he just sussed out sort of these patterns that the files showed, you know, like, oh, they have multiple victims. They treat, uh, you know, that the pedophiles look at Boy Scouts as a soft target because the Boy Scouts are all, I mean, it's true. There's a bunch of little boys gathered there and you take them out in the woods and they take off their clothes. You know, they're going right. swimming, they're going hiking They're You know, it's, a, it's perfect pedophile paradise. Um, and they said, you know, and then they've got all these other patterns. Number one, they're taking boys to their house. Right. Why? Why don't you have a rule that says no spending the night at the scoutmaster's house? Right, right. Period. I mean, they could have had that rule in place from the get go. And I mean, that would have eliminated, you know, what, I don't know, half of the molestation in Boy Scouts right there. Um, so between that and some other, you know, just so, so he just noticed a few like huge issues that were readily available from reviewing these files. And the Boy Scouts never did that. I mean, and it it would have been hard. They were the ones creating the files. Even if they somebody just sat down and said like, hmm, what do I remember about these files? Yeah, that's some pretty basic stuff. Maybe right. we should do something with that information. Maybe I should tell somebody outside of my room with these filing cabinets that we could use this information to change the policies going forward and protect kids so the same thing doesn't happen to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, meanwhile, there's like a moment, I can't remember where I saw this, where the lawyer for the Boy Scouts is like pointing out and reading from a pamphlet that goes to the families about um, what the Boy Scouts, what the children should do if if they if they see something or if something goes wrong, like basically putting it on the scout. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, um, oh, they have all kinds of things like that. Yeah, they, they in our case, they made a lot of emphasis on, well, we rely on the parents to protect the kids when they're in scouts. And, you know, our our youth protection is that the parents need to keep them safe. This is actually an argument that has infuriated me throughout my litigation with the Boy Scouts, because the Boy Scouts have always always said, you know, put your children in scouting so that they can have other male role models in their family. Yes, they want the fathers mostly to be involved, but they also say your scoutmaster is a mentor for your son. 
and they and they have made that you know that that is part of scouting is to give a a, a boy a different role model other than his father and they have made huge marketing efforts to specifically go after um, boys from broken homes, boys in disadvantaged um, communities, you know, like big programs through the 70s, especially to target disadvantaged neighborhoods and communities to try to get boys from, uh, you know, without fathers. And then they sit and they say like, well, if if the parents have been involved, this wouldn't have happened. Right. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, you spoke about them being sort of, um, uh, I can't remember if the term is soft targets or just that, um, you know, you've got all these boys and then and the um, idea of, you know, creating the trusted adult uh, in their life and that that's what the Boy Scouts did. And then if I remember, Mr. Dykes, it seems like was sort of a, a charismatic um, person that, that all the boys looked up to, a mountain climber, big guy, uh, you know, and, and if you hadn't known what he was doing, um, seemed like, you know, to even the parents, uh, you know, a good person to have around their kids, except that he was, you know, um, when they were at his home or, you know, out on camping trips was molesting them all. Uh, but that was sort of the, you know, the, the at risk that they were putting them at. But, um, and I, th- I thought that that theme that was sort of, um, you know, I mean, w- what you just said, uh, Gillian, which is, which is that, you know, you, they're encouraging you to come in to have these, these mentors and they pick these people who will get them to do, you know, all this neat stuff that's going to be fun. And then, and then feel like they have no responsibility to protect these children when they, when something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. The, um, I, the other thing I liked, um, uh, the in the uh, I think it was in the closing argument was that you know how the Boy Scouts has you know um uh what to do in all kinds of different situations when there's lightning when there's a snake bite when there's you know uh you know whatever else can go wrong when you're in the outdoors and gives you warnings about that and, and then you know absolutely gives you no type of warning uh whatsoever about you know the fact that there are adults out there that will um uh take advantage of you and, and, um, and, um, be predators, um, you know, and, and absolutely harm you. Well, that was a, that was a big issue in our trial that, you know, they train you on, yeah. How safe use of a hatchet, safe, how to build a fire safe, uh, in a safe way. All of these things that they did do training on, they had the power to do training on, they mandated that training, but they insisted that they did not have the legal authority to mandate sex abuse training because their argument was and continues to be to a certain extent in different in later cases that the bsa national is a completely separate entity from the local councils and the troops and that's absolutely necessary argument for them to make to avoid liability because they have to say hey we don't control these scoutmasters they're not our guys sure they're they're alone in a forest with your kid in a tent, but we don't have any control over them. They have to make that argument, but it doesn't fly, of course, because if you know anything about Boy Scouts is that it is the Boy Scouts of America. It The program of Boy Scouts is spelled out in the Boy Scout constitution down to the Nat's eyebrow. I mean, they, Boy Scouts of America dictates 
every single thing about the program, what the local councils do, what the chartering organizations do, the sponsors, what the troops do. I mean, right down to what tests you have to take each year to advance from one rank to the next rank, what you do to get a merit badge. It even dictates the exact thread you use and the stitch you use to sew the merit badge on which sleeve of your uniform. They control every single thing. And yet they say, oh, no, th those guys who are the troop leaders, we, we don't have any control over them. They're not our agents. That was a big, big issue in our case. Now, I'll, I'll get a little wonky here. Um, we had a vicarious liability claim in our case because Oregon law is, I don't, I don't want to say it's unique. Um, there could be other states that allow this, but Oregon actually allows vicarious liability for sexual abuse um, under if you meet certain tests, if the abuse arises out of the authorized duties of the agent. Um, we dropped that claim right before trial, strategically realizing that we didn't need to fight that fight because we had such great notice evidence. Right. But our notice evidence, like you said, Timber Dykes confessed to the bishop of the Mormon church. The bishop himself was a Boy Scout volunteer because he was the chartered representative, the sponsoring organization representative. He was, he was in charge of the Boy Scout troop and Cub Scout pack at that church. So he, in the Boy Scout scheme of things, was the Boy Scout representative for that Mormon church. So we had to prove that that guy was the Boy Scout agent, the agent of the BSA, in order for the notice to him to count as notice to BSA. And that was enough of an agency issue to argue without, we figured, without having to actually get into, you know, vicarious liability law. So, but we, the Boy Scouts fought that tooth and nail. So they, we, we actually still had to put on an agency case to the jury and, and, you know, instruct them in agents, Oregon agency law of right to control an agent and, you know, and oh boy, the Boy Scouts thought, I think they thought they were going to win that. They kept saying like, hey, we didn't know. You know, nobody in Texas knew that this guy had molested kids. Nobody even at the local council office knew. The only person who knew was the bishop and the other guy there at the church, you know, but nobody outside of the church knew. And no, the jury didn't buy that. The jury had no problem understanding Agency, you know, you can explain agency issues to a jury. They understand control. They understand right. the Boy Scouts have a program and you have to follow it. And they, they understood it. And and, you know, so you, I think as lawyers, we sometimes think like, oh, God, how do you explain agency to somebody? It seems so like, you know, mind bender. And I don't think it is, yeah. you know, and after that. Um, after that, and after the jury just went right over it, like it wasn't even a speed bump, um, we haven't been afraid to tackle it at all. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. That to me, that when you put it in terms of control, everybody understands that. Especially you know who's had a job, work for an employer, anything like that. They they know what it's like to be under the control, and especially when, as you were just pointing out, how they they you know give you instructions and guidance on how to do every single bit of of scouting. Um, but it, it is something that, uh, you know, our friends on the defense side will often get bogged down on just saying, you know, you're not going to be able to prove that it was us. And like, it, it's not going to be that difficult for a jury to understand because they don't think, you know, uh, the way lawyers think, um, right. you know, they think they, they understand what it means. I, I absolutely agree with you about um, about control. And it's well, it's another one of those examples that I feel like the defense focuses on on a for a motion for summary judgment. Um, where you've got a judge and you've got, you know, whatever the evidence they're picking out and whatever their favorite cases. And it's like a stronger argument or a trickier argument at summary judgment than it is to actual real people and juries who, Mm -hmm. as you said, are comparing it to their jobs or their experience in life. And and they know how it really works. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And especially, you know, the, the, the defendants focus on like, well, they weren't paid. They were volunteers, so they can't be employees. They can't be employee agents. Like, um, I remember that from law school. (laughs) You you don't have to be paid to be an employee. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to uh, shift for a second and talk about um, the idea of uh, I, I, uh, recovered memories. Um, one of the things I noticed that the jury had to find on the um, on the verdict form was whether or not uh, this was a the statute of limitations had run. I think, um, yeah, or whether or not the statute of limitations barred the claim. And um, it, it seemed like in this in in this case that uh, that Mr. Lewis had a recovered memory, and 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 you, you all were able to link up some of the things, and we'll talk about damages in a second, but link up the things that he had gone through in his life to um, you know what had happened to him, and then I guess along with that is is this issue that we also talked about how a number of um, uh, of your clients and, and boys, especially when they're first asked about being molested, deny that it happened. And I think even Mr. Lewis, in this case, when the, when he was first asked whether or not he had been molested said, no, he, he hadn't been. So how, how do you deal with those issues? I guess, both in getting the case ready for trial and then, at, at, and then at trial. Right. And I guess there's a lot to, there's kind of a lot to. Right. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Uh, So Oregon, like a lot of other states, has an extended statute of limitations for these kinds of cases. Um, It does not depend on recovered memory. Um, It's based on either age, which changed in the middle of this case from age 26 to age 40. And that was a little bit confusing because um, Carrie Lewis was over 26, but under 40. So there was a question about which one was going to apply. Um, Or it's now um, when the person makes the connection between the abuse as a kid and the problems that it caused, the injury that it caused. And most people don't make the connection between the problems. Like they may, they probably remember that they were abused. Mm-hmm. Most people don't repress the memory or forget the memory. Um, they they always remember that they're abused. They all 
also know that they're an alcoholic or have been married four times or depressed or, you know, have an anger problem, whatever. They, they know they have these problems. They just don't realize that the problems were caused by the abuse. And, um, until something happens in their life, either they are older, usually about 52. That's the average age of making this connection. For some reason, somebody did a study of that and figured it out. Um, or something happens. They, their kid turns the same age that they were when they were abused. They um, see some movie about child abuse. Something happens in their life and they, you know, light bulb goes off. So, aha, something happens and they make that connection finally, and they start to figure it out. That's when the statute of limitations starts to run. That's the okay. Oregon statute. There are a lot of states that have a similar connection statute like that. And um, and so that's, uh, that's the statute that was going on in Carrie Lewis's case. Um, we argued that it was the five-year one. Defendants argued that it was a three-year earlier version. We never really had to resolve that um, because defendants didn't really argue the statute of limitations defense at trial. They they pretended to, but everybody, the wording of the 40-year um, revised one made it pretty clear that it was um, retroactive mm -hmm. and revived all claims, even for cases that were pending at the time that it was passed. Okay. So we really didn't have to argue that. Um, but on the other hand, it does also apply to repressed memory, revived memory. But we didn't um, we didn't bring in a repressed memory, revived memory expert with with um, Carrie. I think they I think the expert that we had touched on it a little bit, you know, just to explain that kids oftentimes put that memory in the back of their mind, um, you know, after the abuse happened, even after Carrie Lewis denied being abused to his parents um, and then only kind of remembered it later, it came up later, but he wasn't a classic case of, of repressed memory where he actually, like if you had, I think in Carrie Lewis's case, if you had talked to him when he was say like, you know, 25 and asked him, were you abused as a kid? He would have said like, oh yeah, now that you're asking me, yeah, I was. I don't know that he had actually locked it away. Okay. And then I guess, I mean, it seemed like yeah. here, it was pretty clear that, um, that, that, that Mr. Dykes had molested, uh, um, Carrie Lewis as well as the others. Did, did the defense try and make an issue of that at any, at all that he had denied it initially when he uh, was first asked about it. Oh yeah, no. Um, I see what you're saying. Like, no, they, I, they didn't really say like, Oh, since he denied it when he was a kid, he must be lying now about being abused. Right. Right. No, no, they didn't try to yeah. get any traction on that. That would have been too hard. So many kids deny it. Right. I so when voted it, but they didn't beat it. When these, um, I mean, you specialize in these kinds of cases, when you, when some of these clients come to you, is it, you know, for a lot of them, is it kind of the first time or, or, or early on for them actually talking about this stuff talking about what happened to them? It's often the first time they ever tell anyone. Yes. Um, which is, um, not something I thought not something I w thought I would face in my law practice. Yes. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, sometimes they, you know, they right before they pick up the phone and call me, they tell their wife, you know, I have to, I have to make a phone call because I've never told you this, but I was abused when I was a kid. Um, a lot of times wow. they don't even do that. Sometimes they just call me or my law partner and say, I need to talk to you because I was abused as a kid. I've never told anybody what happened. And then they just blurt out what happened. And then they say, I've never told anybody that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. as as you point out, we're not, I mean, we clients come to us all with all kinds of situations, but I think this is obviously more sensitive than most. And you're not, I mean, that's not something you're trained for in law school at all. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we've gotten better at it over the years. This is, uh, you know, the only kind of law I've been practicing now since 2007. So it's been a, it's been years and years that I've gotten used to this and it's I have, now it's I, I'm I'm happy that I'm doing it because yeah. it's so much more fulfilling than other kinds of law that I practiced right uh in the years before and and I will say that you know the Carrie Lewis trial was wonderful I'm glad we we had the experience to do it I'm glad we got the files I'm glad we got the the huge verdict and all of that but the the better part was all of the hundreds I mean, and I mean hundreds of men who came forward after that and called us because they saw the news stories and they said that they were abused and we were able to help them. And I don't mean help them. So yes, get them compensation from the Boy Scouts, but every single person who calls us, we try to get them to a counselor, right. not a counselor right. at law, but I mean a counselor counselor because right. we right. tell them, you know, for a lot of reasons, we we can help you with your legal problem, but you got bigger problems than that. And you need to talk to a counselor. And a lot of them are resistant. Some of them never go. Some of them only go because they're in litigation and litigation is stressful in itself. And we can't talk to them on the phone every time they call. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, the you know, but and the ones who, you know, a lot of them say this was the best thing that ever happened to me was that you nagged me until I got a counselor and that changed my life. And for the ones who tell me that, that is the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Well, in, in, in talking about that, let's just talk a little bit about damages and how you presented that at trial. It, it um, sounded like that uh, after this uh, molestation had happened, that um, basically uh, Mr. Lewis spiraled um they said that he uh, had problems with uh, drugs and alcohol uh became uh what, what was described as sexually hyperactive and uh, got in trouble with the law and then i guess he, he had his dream was to uh to go into the air force but wasn't able to get in or um because of you know some of his problems didn't right. wasn't able to go to college and then i think actually even got kicked out of the navy is that right right so he yeah yeah, he he was not. This was a case where we had to embrace the negative, right? You know, like they tell, like they teach us to do. Um, he, uh, Carrie, suffered uh, really. He he was a meth addict with an anger problem, and so he, yeah, he wanted to go into the Air Force like his dad. They wouldn't take him because of his drug use. I guess the Navy was a little more lenient, so the Navy took him, but he got kicked out for drugs. Um, he was clean for a while, but he backslid within a month before we went to trial. Oh, wow. um, 
he refused to go to counseling. He was one of our clients who we kept begging him to go to counseling. He went maybe two or three times in the years we were getting ready for trial. Um, it was, I mean, he was, you know, it was, it was, he was, we struggled with how we were going to explain this to a jury and, um, and we obviously we couldn't do it with Carrie, you know, I mean, right. Carrie could say what happened in his life, but you know, you don't want him to just look like he's whining, you know, right. That, right. that isn't good. So we had some very good, we did, uh, we had just did it with experts who just had to explain what happens, uh, how child abuse affects, affects people and as specifically how it affects men. And that, and that's what we had to go with. And luckily it's believable. Everybody knows, everybody knows somebody who was affected by child abuse. Everybody knows somebody who was abused, a family member, a a friend. And so that they understood it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I liked uh, out of the closing was uh, that you were able to, um, you know, talk about the fact that the only person in the courtroom that would admit their problems was Carrie, uh, because not even the Boy Scouts would admit their problems. And that went back to this, you know, kept asking the question of, do you, you know, have a problem? And they're like, well, I wouldn't call it a problem. And, you know, and they just would would never say they had a problem, which I, I, I'm not sure who advised uh, the Boy Scouts to take that line. But, um, right. but uh, w- is, it doesn't work in front of a jury. No, it didn't work. Just like uh, right after the verdict, they posted something on the website that says, we disagree with the verdict and we will fight this all the way, to, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that wasn't a good idea either. Right, right. <laughs> I was so excited. I'm sure Steve's planning to talk about that, about how you were able to use that in the arguments for punitive damages. What, what they said after the verdict, I thought was so cool. It was so great. It was a gift. It it was a gift. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, is that, is that the same jury that's hearing the punitive damages phase? Right. Right. So we bifurcate, I think like most places do, we don't do it by statute. We have to do it by agreement or whatever. Um, So the first in phase one, the jury decides entitlement to punitives. And in phase two, they decide um, uh, the amount of punitive damages. We had a little blip in that one of the, jurors, I can't remember now if they got sick or they had some prepaid vacation. And so we had to take a week off between phase one and phase two, which of course everybody was biting their nails for fear that the same nine jurors just simply wouldn't come back. Oh, we had, um, we only need nine out of 12 to get up. But it has to be the same nine. And so we had this fear that the 12 jurors wouldn't come back and like only nine would come back, but it wouldn't be the same nine. And Oh, Oh my God. And we'd have a mistrial after all, after the four weeks, you know? So, um, but they all showed up, thank God. And, uh, and then, um, yeah, but the, in the meantime, the boy scouts had posted on their website, how they did, they disagreed with the the jury. They refused to accept the, the verdict. Um, they, and they would, you know, fight it. And, and the judge let us use that in opening statements in the punitive damages phase. And of course, in closing statements to argue that they were, that they 
you know, that they weren't repentant, that right. they would not, um, that they, that they refused to hear the message, which of course, once the jury says you need to be punished for your, for your conduct and you say, I mean, essentially, you know, flip them off. That's right. That, that is evidence of, of their refusal to hear that message. And, you know, I think the judge was right in letting us use that. Um, oh, absolutely. It's so yeah. good. And I mean, you've got to think too, I mean, if I were on that jury, you know, the, it's not like the compensatory award was crazy given what Carrie went through. You know, I think that's very reasonable. It's not like they went wild, you know, awarding billions of dollars. So to cut, and, and we know being a jur- on a jury is hard work. Deliberations are hard work. They had a lot of material to go through. So Heck yeah. If I found out that after all that work that that they had basically in a very reasonable verdict that they had been like, this is they got it wrong. And I'd be like, yeah. OK, oh, yeah. I get another chance. Here comes. Punitive damages. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And it was. Yeah. 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 It was it was it was so good. Uh, talk quickly about what witnesses you put up in the punitive damages, uh, if, if any, what. What, what did you use to, uh, to prove them up? The only, um, I, uh, I put on a, um, a CPA, a woman named Serena Morones, who, uh, she just went through the, the financials financial statements and put, and, um, explained, you know, how, how much money they had, which now that they're in bankruptcy, that money is melting away. But at the time they were sitting on a mountain of money, um, most of it in liquid assets, most of it invested in the stock market. And she just walked, walked through it. It didn't take long. And, um, and yeah. And so she just explained what the money was, where it all was. And they had a, they had a big problem at, at the time. I'm not, I don't know what they're doing now. That their that their um, chief scout executive and um, their other executive officers were making a lot more money than similar officers in other um, other nonprofits and other youth serving organizations in particular. I think I think the head guy was making like one point seven million dollars, while the head of the Girl Scouts was making three hundred thousand dollars a year or something like that. And so we did some you know, cutesy little stuff with her comparing things and comparing stuff. And I don't know, set a few little traps for cross-examination that were yeah, kind of fun yeah, and yeah. Yeah, did, did fun little things, but that, that was it. Um, I, I, um, we had some rebuttal cause we knew they were going to put on their, Oh, we've changed and we've have all these youth, <laughs> uh, we have all this, uh, you know, youth safety now. And then, um, and then we, uh, we put on some rebuttal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that I, I always like to do in the punitive damages phase, which is, you know, uh, you know, now that you've heard the jury, uh, you planning on changing anything. And usually the answer is, no, we're not going to change anything. Yeah. Um, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that was where they insisted that they couldn't change and mandate sex abuse training because they didn't have any control over the the troops. And then as soon as they got hit with the $18.5 million punitive damages, the next week they announced that they were going to mandate uh, sex abuse training for all of the uh, troop level. Wow. Um, so they can do it. That's great. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. As soon as they got a punitive damages verdict, then they had the right to control the uh, the the sex abuse training. Weird. Yeah. Weird how that works. Yeah. 
Um, well, and I, I did notice it. You're, so, you know, in Georgia here, we're capped on our punitive damages, except if you can show intentional conduct or in product liability cases on the first uh, first time you're you're doing a defect. And you have to, if you know, in those cases where they're uncapped for uh, for the product liability, 75% of that is supposed to go to the state. And I saw that you have a similar statute in Oregon that 60% of the punitive award goes to the state. Is that right? At the time of Carrie Lewis's trial, 60% went to the state. They then changed it. It's now 70%. Okay. Yeah. They um, made it a little bit higher, huh? Um, <laughs> yeah. did, one of the things that I was just wondering, did you get a chance to talk to the jury afterwards to hear what they thought or anything like Are you allowed to do that in Oregon? We're not allowed to talk to the jury. Um, I believe the judge talked to the jury a little bit and then talk to us, but it was very brief. So no, we didn't get any substantive information. Um, I think later one of the jurors called one of our paralegals and had a short conversation and just told him that they had gone through the IV files and were, you know, and were shocked by what they saw. And it was, um, we did one of the legal wranglings that we went through in addition to getting the IV files and getting them late was the, and it has to do with punitive damages, the entitlement to punitive damages, you can't get, you can't be entitled to punitive damages for harm to others. So the Boy Scouts made an argument that they, that anything relating to harm to others in the IV files had to be redacted. So in phase one of the trial, so much was redacted from the IV files that they looked at. And it, it, it they were all, they were almost half black um, because anytime anything said, you know, the boy reported abuse, he was crying. That, that had to be redacted Redact, or yeah. the, um, were the the boys uh, the boy was abused but he's in counseling so the police are not going to prosecute anything about the boy being counseling had to be redacted because it showed like oh he must have been harmed because he was in counseling so like we had to go through these we, keep in mind we got them three weeks before trial started so we were going through them we were redacting all this stuff all the regular stuff like any kids any minors the name of any minor any reference to insurance, which was nothing, there were the only references to insurance were like for driving insurance because they were going right. camping, you know. So it was like yeah, crazy making. Um, and then anything about harm to others, which the Boy Scouts were pointing out, you know, ridiculously minor stuff. And so the the version that went to the jury in the phase one. I, I don't even think they've really even looked at anything because they looked at maybe the ones we pointed out to them, but they didn't go through and look at them themselves because they would be flipping through and it was all, it was just black. It just black. looked like yeah. a crossword puzzle, you know? Um, so as soon as they gave the verdict in the, uh, that we're entitled to punitive damages, when you're looking at reprehensibility, you can consider right. Reprehensibility goes to the amount of punitive damages. And when you're looking at reprehensibility, you can consider um, other harm. Yeah. Right. Oh, my God. I was on my feet, you know, asking the judge to let us unredact these these files. So then we spent that week 
luckily we had that week. We didn't have to start the next day um, on unredacting all of that stuff. So the version that they did get in the second half was so clean and they got to look at it. And I think that's what made the, the, you know, that's part of what they actually finally got to look through in the second half. I don't think they really spent much time. And that's what that juror told us when, when she did call to talk was, you know, we didn't get all that worked up in the first half. I mean, yeah, you convinced us that they should get punitive damages, but it was only in the second phase when we actually got our hands on them and could read them and see what was in them that we really got pissed off and really, wow. and really wanted to sock it to them. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I, I meant to ask you about and, and forgot is on the verdict form. So the, the 1.4 million in compensatories was non-economic damages. And I, I at least saw in your complaint that you pled both economic and non-economic. Was that a strategic move to uh, not ask for economic damages or is that something the, the court had done? Uh, well, we originally um included a claim for economic damages and we're going to ask for counseling money right. since he never went to a counselor right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have, we didn't have any right right okay um, so <laughs> so when we um so they actually moved for a directed verdict on economic damages and since we didn't have any evidence of it the court granted it yeah okay okay well that makes sense i was just wondering about that yeah, um but we didn't have an elaborate economic damages claim like for uh you know, lost wages or, or reduced lifetime income or something. And that's actually a, uh, that's actually a good question because the common thinking among attorneys who do these kind of cases is that you don't want to ask for economic damages. If they're going to be, you know, if your economic damages claim is going to be $10,000 for counseling right. or, yeah. you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a thought that that might uh, anchor your verdict down uh, yeah. to a lower amount. Um, well, is there it, it, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, did you all do any focus groups uh, beforehand uh, before you tried the case? We did. We, um, you know, we, we did uh, just kind of some general themes and um, a, f a couple of little uh Along the agency lines, we were looking yeah. at some of the agency arguments, also some for the vicarious liability stuff, which, again, they didn't seem to have any problems with, but we wanted to just make make sure of that before we went in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, uh, this has been just a, a, a really good uh, in, uh, interview in a fascinating case. I wanted to ask you, is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners have heard about the uh, Carrie Lewis versus Boy Scouts of America and uh, Cascade Pacific Council uh, case that, that we haven't talked about? Uh, no, you know, I just think that it is, it, it was definitely, it's the only it did lead to the, those files are the ones that ended up on the internet. That's a, yeah. that's a good point to make. Afterwards, the Boy Scouts tried to get them um, sealed and the media intervened and um, that went up to the Oregon Supreme Court and the Oregon Supreme Court said, no, they were used in open trial. And uh, so they are, they're public record now. And the LA Times put them on the website. They're still there. So those are the files that when people say like, oh, these are public, those are the files they're talking about. Wow. Right. There aren't any other files that are that are public. So when people are like, oh, I found my abuser in an IV file, that's the ones they're talking about, the ones that are there on the LA Times website. Wow. Um, yeah. And, that, and I think uh, this is what kind of got the snowball 
rolling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, huge. I mean, it's, you know, just great work. And, um, uh, you know, it's the discovery battles are some of the, uh, the battles that I think most lawyers uh, hate, but they are so important and so necessary, mm-hmm. um, to really, you know, get that type of information. I mean, if you, if you hadn't had those files going to trial, your case would have been entirely different. <laughs> absolutely. I, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 you know, not only did you help Mr. Lewis, but you've helped, uh, you know, thousands of other people who've been victims, uh, you know, in similar situations. So it's, uh, it's what, uh, it's the reason I became a trial lawyer. And I think it's a reason uh, a lot of people became trial lawyers to, uh, is to help others when they can. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, it was a good team on that case and, you know, it, it was good. It came together. I, I miss Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. it was good to try the case with him and and Paul Moniz was the other trial attorney on it and and Peter Jancy, Christian Rogendorf. It was a good it was a good team we pulled together. Yeah, well, that's um, that that is um, just great work. Let me remind everybody we've been talking about the uh, uh, Carrie Lewis versus uh, Boy Scouts of America and Cascade Pacific Council tried in 2010 in Multnomah County, Oregon, uh, and it was a total verdict of 19.9 million dollars. And, um, and we have been talking to uh, Gillian Dumas uh, of Dumas and Vaughn. Uh, and you can look her up at dumasandvaughn.com. That's D-U-M-A-S-A-N-D-V-A-U-G-H-N.com. Uh, Gillian, thank you so much for, uh, for your time and, um, and congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.